Let's turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You know, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you don't read about a Messiah. You don't read about a Redeemer. You don't read about heaven. You don't read about the need for a Savior, nor the Son of David that was coming. Because the purpose of this little book is to leave us hopeless and to look in the rest of the Bible to find the answer for that hopelessness. He's going to give us a little bit of hope that the conclusion of the whole matter is to fear God and to keep His commandments. But there's the gospel is way beyond that. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light. Amen. Which is a whole another blessing of the New Testament that we're part of. New Testament is far superior to the Old Testament. Amen. And the amount of revelation in the New Testament far exceeds that of the Old Testament. But the limited purpose of Ecclesiastes is to take apart all the foolish ideas that men have and that we get sometimes about what might make us happy and what might be profitable for our lives. And Solomon takes that all away and says it's all vanity. So therefore we need to let this lesson sink into our souls that we do not look on this plane under the sun for our fulfillment, but in heaven above for our fulfillment. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, give me just a couple of minutes to look at verses 9 through 15 again. I want to read them to you. Verses 9 through 15 tell us that those that large variety of things that are listed in verses 2 through 8 are the different times that God chooses. And if your timing doesn't match up with His timing, it will come to nothing. Right. What profit... Verse 9 of Ecclesiastes 3. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? If the timing doesn't match up with God's timing above. I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it, that men should fear before him. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. The cycle of vanity, that these things happen to all men, the times and seasons change, and they frustrate our lives, so that the best laid plans and most diligent efforts do not amount to what we had hoped they would, or what others thought they should, or what we have seen others accomplish in their lives. Let's take a couple of examples very quickly. Peace. A time of peace. In the, early minute, in the early reign of Solomon, it tells us, and you've read these verses in previous preparatory reading, 1 Kings chapter 4, that every man could sit under his fig tree and under his vine and enjoy peace in Israel because God gave widespread peace to Solomon so that he had no enemies. It was a time of peace. If you needed to have no war going on so that you could have a prosperous business, 
You had that opportunity. If you wanted to farm without any of your boys being called up to go off and fight Philistines, you had that opportunity because it was a time of peace. The Lord arranged that. It was the God's blessing upon Solomon so that he could give his time undistracted to the pursuit of wisdom. But you know what? You go to 1 Kings chapter 11, it's a different story. You go to 1 Kings 11, the Lord's getting upset as Solomon keeps adding pagan wives to his harem. And he raises up adversaries. And if you go read 1 Kings 11, the first 11 verses are going to tell you about all those wives. And the last part of the chapter is going to tell you about adversaries that God raised up. The time of peace was disappearing. And then you read the life of Rehoboam. He was at war every day of his reign with ten tribes of Israel and other enemies outside Israel. There, there the Lord took away the time of peace. He gave the time of peace. He withdrew it. For a while it was a great blessing and every man could sit under his vine, under his fig tree and enjoy a little bit of food and a little bit of drink, just like we read here, in contented moderation before God. Then it was gone. Are you familiar with these words? I know you are. Jesus said, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. His goodness wasn't in God, nor his faith was in God. His faith was in his stuff, and that there was a lot of it. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? His plan was to pull down. But God's timing didn't allow him to pull down anything because he died that night because it was God's time for him to die. I want you to understand how to view all those opposites that are there in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If your timing doesn't match God's timing, you're in trouble. So we have this verse. Go to now, ye that say, we will go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Oh no, for you do not even know what's going to happen on the morrow. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will... We shall live and do this or that. We need it God's time for us not to die. And we need it to be God's time for us to gain. Or you're going to go into such and such a city and come home a pauper and very frustrated for it. That's James chapter 4 verses 13 through 15. Solomon said here in Ecclesiastes 3. There's no good in them, in putting your stock in any of those things listed above, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor, it is the gift of God. Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 6, And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into many foolish and hurtful snares. Those that think they can so order their life to be successful and rich... God can turn it upside down, and he does this to bring travail into our lives, to exercise us thereby, and all men, so that we will fear him. 
that we will come before him and say, Lord, bless my efforts this day. If the Lord does not bless your efforts every day, your efforts will not be blessed. He can bless with just the word of his mouth or the thought of his counsel, and he can bless. Let's go to the next lesson. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Again, here's the times and seasons of God in disposing wickedness and his judgment and chastening of that wickedness. In verse 16, I saw under the sun. When you look above the sun, there is no wickedness in the place of judgment because God is absolutely perfect, righteous, and just in all that he does. This is under the sun. And as long as you are in this world, and I remember it was put to me this way when I was very young, many, many years ago, imperfect authority and imperfect judgment is always better than no authority or no judgment. And that's the best we're going to have it in this world. Imperfect rule by a ruler is better than no rule at all. Because if there's no rule at all, it is total anarchy and a total destruction of society. Better to have a little imperfect rule... Better to have a little imperfect judgment than to have none at all. Right. And moreover, I saw under the sun. Here's a two-verse lesson. We want to separate it because it's a different thought. I saw under the sun the place of judgment. The courts, if you will, primarily. It's going to call it the place of judgment. It's going to call it the place of righteousness. Both terms can apply to courts. Both terms could apply to the temple of God where God's law was administered in the nation of Israel. Wherever there is authority that rules ought to be made to protect the innocent and to punish the evildoers, you're going to find wickedness there. That is going to be our plight in this world. This is truly a book of philosophy. One of the questions that skeptics always ask, well, if you believe in a God, then why is there evil in the world? There is evil in a world because he's accomplishing his purposes, and verse 17 tells us that. There is a time for every purpose and for every work, including wickedness. That's why we love Psalm 76.10 that we used earlier today. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. No matter when, uh, what, what you read, when you read about the goriest, most evil, profane, Sin and crime imaginable, child sexual abuse, whatever you want to pick as, as your greatest, the greatest evil that your mind lays hold of, whether it's abortion, whether it's same-sex marriages that the government allows and protects, you're going to see that in this world. It's going to be there. I saw under the sun the place of judgment. Where there ought to be righteousness and justice and equity. When holiness ought to prevail. That wickedness was there. I saw that wickedness crept in to the court system, to the church system. You can hear it from the pulpits of America. You can see it in our courts. And the place of righteousness, 
could be the very same place, just named a different name. Because judgment is to defend righteousness, and true judgment is righteousness, that iniquity was there. Iniquity is another word for wickedness. It's just a parallelism common in Scripture where something is repeated twice, in which you can apply it broadly to courts, church, and every authority in between. You know, when there is a committee of your business, and you know that a situation is coming before them, and you expect something to be done that is right for the benefit of your company, and you don't see righteousness there, you see wickedness instead. It's frustrating even in a business situation. The boards of companies meet and they make decisions. And we see wickedness there. And we see iniquity there. This is a common thing that men see. But the world does not have an explanation for it. We, knew, we know where evil came from. It came from God allowing Satan in the Garden of Eden to tempt our first parents. And our first parents sinned. And God allowed that act of evil. Which then corrupted our race. And we've been sinning ever since. And the best of men, in their best state, are still sinners. And so there is no perfect father, there is no perfect pastor, there is no perfect president, there is no perfect military commander, there's no perfect school principal. We see wickedness and iniquity. But we have an answer. It's in verse 17. And this is not all the answer, there's more in the Bible about it. I said in mine heart, as I viewed that, And it was frustrating to a man with natural wisdom of how things ought to be run and to a man that had been taught by God and a godly father, Solomon knew what wickedness and iniquity truly was. But he said, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. If it is a righteous man that has sinned in a place of judgment or in a place of righteousness, he's going to be chastened by God. If it's a wicked man that has done it in a place of judgment, like a court, it's a judge, it's a jury, it's a supreme court, or it's in a church. God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. God will chasten the righteous. God will judge the wicked for the sins that they have committed in abusing their position of authority and the responsibility God has given to them to protect righteousness. So very short lesson. Because one of the vanities of life is to look at life and see evil. But the solution is God's going to judge it. They're not going to get away with that forever. Be sure your sin will find you out. Our eight words from Numbers chapter 32. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. If evil is allowed, it's because God has allowed it and he has restrained any evil beyond that. And though you may read something that sounds terrible... It is still better than what we all deserve in hell. Even though it's terrible and God has allowed it and the one that perpetrated it will not get away with it. He will be caught and punished whether in this world, in the next world or both. Judas, if you really want to be spiritually minded, Judas committed the greatest crime. And Judas paid for it in this world and the next world. His children were left fatherless. The prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ in the way of prophecy in Psalm 109 was terrible against him. Let his sins be remembered before the God of heaven. He will have one terrible day of judgment that is yet coming. 
So there's comfort for us. When we see evil in the world, there's an answer for it. There's a God in heaven. Now, this isn't the only place Solomon's going to help us with this one. Because if you've talked to very many people about an approach to life and philosophy, they're always asking about evil. And it was common for Solomon to deal with this. Look at chapter 4. We're going to get into it again. Verse 1. I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. There's little children, whether it's children in the womb or children too large to defend themselves or figure out what's going on, that have been abused. And there's no comforter for them. There's no comfort to them. He's going to deal with it. We'll, get, we'll deal with his solution when we get to that place. Chapter 5 and verse 8. If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. Don't let it overwhelm you. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. Even if sin is allowed to get and is defended all the way up to the highest level of government, there is one higher than they. The Supreme Court may be the highest judicial body in our nation, but there is a court higher than them, and it's the counsel of the Lord. Our Congress may be the highest legislative body, but there is a council above them, and it's the Lord. So we put our trust there. What about evil? God allowed it. God rules it. God uses it to his praise, and no evil occurs that he hasn't permitted, and he's going to judge it all anyway. How's that for an answer? Amen. We have a great answer, and in it we should find great comfort. Let's go to the next lesson. Verses 18 through 22 of chapter 3. Ecclesiastes 3, 18. Ah, let me, let me chase an illustration for you. Some of us were raised in learning about what government was up to so that we could try to have a grassroots reaction to it and get it changed. But if it's not God's time for change to, play, to take place, it ain't going to take place. Right. And all those efforts amounted to nothing. This past week, a decision was made, and you're going to read about it. Most of you have already read about it. By our government. There are two large organizations, companies, that guarantee mortgages and make the mortgage market work as well as it's worked for the last 40 years. They are Fannie Mae, and that's not a girl, that's a company named FNMA, Federal National Mortgage Association. And there's Freddie Mac, which is FHLMC, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation. Those two companies are very large, and they have guaranteed 12 trillion of mortgages. Now, some of these people out in California that wanted to buy houses at $300,000, $501,000 per square foot, and they wanted to buy them with nothing down, and they wanted to take out a mortgage called a pick-a-pay mortgage. A pick-a-pay mortgage is, if you don't want to make your payment this month, cool, don't make it. We'll just add it to your principal balance, and you can owe us more later. A pick-a-pay, you had four options. You could pay a regular payment. You could pay an interest-only payment, which wouldn't be adding anything to your equity. You could pay a negative amortization payment, or you could skip a payment. 
You say, well, how do they ever get paid off? It takes a long time. They had rules, but to even allow that one time is a mercy no one should have. So what's happened? It's a two-edged sword. They picked a pay. They picked not to pay. So their mortgage balance was getting larger, and the value of their house was getting smaller. Because for the first time in the history of this country for a long time, since the Great Depression, real estate values are declining. It has been an axiom of all decisions for the last 50 years, go ahead and buy real estate and buy a house because it's always going to go up. A house should never go up in value. In a real money system, a house would not go up in value any more than your car would go up in value because both of them are depreciating because everything on earth, moths and rust, doth corrupt. Right. Houses should go down because they're used. After you've been in a house for a year, it needs a new paint job. It needs new carpet. carpets. I mean, I, I know some of you are more careful than others. But anyway, real estate values going down, their mortgages going up. Guess what they do? They walk and they don't pay. So these banks are about to go under, and some banks have gone under. Two weeks ago, a bank in Pasadena called IndyMac, a bank of $32 billion went under, and the FDIC had to come in and bail out. If you had over 100000 in it, you may get $0.50 cents on the dollar. You may get a dime on the dollar. It opened up again on Monday morning under a new name with the FDIC running the bank. But these banks are about to fail, so our government has come in. I'm saying all this to build a story so that you can learn to appreciate verses 16 and 17. Right. Our government has said, because the whole world knows that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are about to go under. You want to talk about a stock driven to oblivion. Both stocks were driven to oblivion. The short sellers of the world, and I do love them when they have their place, they punished those two companies and drove their stock to basically zero. And our government had a, had, a, had a fiasco on their hands in the last one month. If they don't bail out two private companies called Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the mortgage system as we know it is going to fail. And there's people all around the world, including other nations' governments, that hold our mortgage paper. It's going to be trouble. So they said they're going to bail it out. And if you read the news this past week, Congress passed it. They're going to bail it out. If you had any understanding of what they did, you look at this verse and you say, in the place of judgment, I saw wickedness. Because do you know what it means? It means this. The government is walking up to each of you that pay your mortgage on time and have always paid your mortgage or you own your house free and clear. And they're saying to you, we want half of the equity in your house so that we can give it So that we can give it to slothful thieves that do not pay their mortgages and walk away from a commitment they made and signed their name to 50 times at least. That is corruption of government. That is wickedness in a place of judgment. That is iniquity in a place of righteousness. You will pay. You who make your payments will pay for those who don't make their payments. Now... In that bill that was signed by all those men in Congress, the government's accounting office said that the risk to the taxpayers of this country should be about $25 billion. There is no limit in the bill that they passed, and the, the amount of mortgages that they presently guarantee is $12 trillion. Sorry, 
it's going to be more than $25 billion. If it's only 5% of $12 trillion, that's $600 billion. And the government goes on and on and does this. And we see this. It took them $25 billion to bail out the little tiny company called Bear Stearns. It took them $25 billion to give it to J.P. Morgan to buy that little bank. Bear Stearns, never, they didn't have a calculator or a computer in the place that could calculate trillions. They were just a little tiny investment bank compared to all these mortgages. Now, all that is all I'm going to say. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, you read about it in the papers. They signed it. All they're doing is they're going to take money from you to give it to people who don't keep their obligations. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment that wickedness was there and the place of righteousness that iniquity was there. I said in mine heart, and this is the only place you get peace, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. The Lord reigneth is the answer to all of that. If you read that and get in despair, you've missed the point of our religion. Jesus Christ rules heaven and earth. Nothing is going to happen outside of his control. He is the prince of the kings of the earth, and he is the prince of the presidents of the earth, and he is the prince of the legislators of the earth, and he is the prince of the courts of the earth. So we take refuge in that. He will take care of us if we put our trust in him. David said, I've never seen the righteous begging bread, or or his seed begging bread. And we're going to trust him for all of that. I am not a sensationalist. I just told you the facts. We have built a house of cards. And instead of tearing that, letting that house of cards fall down naturally and restoring some sensibility and integrity to the financial and economic system of our country, they're continuing to prop it up by taxing more and going further and further into debt. It won't work, but it doesn't matter because the Lord's going to feed us. The Lord could feed Elijah with ravens from heaven. He had a good meal. How good was his meal? How far did he go in the strength of that meat? 40 days and 40 nights. I'll take that. We usually get hungry a few hours later. 18 through 22. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast. For all is vanity. All go unto one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? Solomon said, I wish God would just make it plain to all these men who are putting their trust in natural things that they would realize that they are nothing but beasts. Because when you look at man naturally, he's no different than an animal. One thing happens to them all. They, are, they, they both need food every day to exist. When that food is withdrawn, they die. When they die, they return to dust. The body of a dog corrupts just like the body of a man. The body of a man corrupts just like the body of a sparrow. They're all the same. From a natural viewpoint, they all look the same. 
Now Solomon is not writing as somebody who's out of, who has no knowledge. Look at what he says in verse 21. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? See, he sneaks that in there for your understanding. There is a difference. But from outside, you can't see it. You know, when you go to a funeral home and you look in there and you touch that body and it's dropped in the ground, there's no difference between that and the the dead animals at the vet's office, right? There's no difference. And so just naturally speaking, it's we're the human animal. That's what they call us nowadays. We're the human animal. I went through a I went through a bibliography of books last night. Oh, I don't know. I got into it researching something I'll tell you in a second. Oh, it was all about how we need to make peace with our brothers and sisters, the animals of the world. Because we're, we're all animals. We all evolved, you know, from the same cesspool, from the same amoeba. We're all evolved, so we're the human animal. And it was finding, finding ourselves by making peace with our brothers and sisters. I'm serious in my choice of words of the animal world. This is a natural view of life only. And you know what? Solomon prayed and asked in his heart concerning the estate of the sons of men in verse 18 that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. And do you know what? The generation we live in, the highest levels of intellectual accomplishment, think that we are beasts. Right. We evolved from monkeys. That dogs can teach us. That parents can love you. Oh, they go beyond that, and they go beyond that in the pulpits of America. Jack Van Empe says he knows 18,000 of the 31,000 verses in the Bible by memory. Rexella, his fawning, loving wife that sits next to him. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry because you're missing it. But Jack Van Empe and his wife Rexella are just one of a number that are writing books now and preaching that animals go to heaven. And they claim, and I have not verified this yet, that John Kelvin preached that. I find that very hard to believe, though I might have differences with John Kelvin. I can't imagine him putting a puppy dog into heaven. I'm going to tell you right now that animals don't go to heaven. Do you know how we know that? This is how good the book of Ecclesiastes is. Do you know how we know that? Verse 21, who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward? Solomon knew it, and we know it. The spirit of man goeth upward. The spirit of the beast goeth downward to the earth. The spirit and soul, whatever that is in an animal, is nothing but dust. And it goes down and returns back to dust along with its bones, blood, hair, and toenails. It does not go up. There's a part in man that is totally different, and it goes up to heaven. In in 12.7, just let me read it. It's close by. 12.7, then shall the dust return to the earth when we die. The only part that goes down is our body. The only part that goes down and returns to dust is our body. Our soul and spirit goes to heaven. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was before God scooped it together and breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Chapter 12, verse 7. When we die, 
Our spirit goes back to God because it is a spirit of a completely different sort. It is made in the image of God. Animals were not made in the image of God whatsoever. But they are now teaching that. And some of you have encountered the books or the sermons or the idea that animals go to heaven. Who in the world would want an animal there? It would have to be glorified. And who's going to glorify it? Because who died to save it from corruption? There was nothing to save. Everything in heaven will be glorified and perfect. Animals die because the effect of our sins is upon them and the whole creation. The whole creation groaneth in travail and in pain till now because of our sins. That's why they eat each other. Animals didn't eat each other in the beginning. You say, but they had the teeth of carnivores. You're paying too much attention in school. Sin corrupted the world and changed the order of things. I said in my heart, if men... If men want to try to find their fulfillment in life, you know the greatest king dies like the lowest mongrel junkyard dog. He's tossed in a hole in the ground. I don't care if it's a pretty hole or not. But he is going to be corrupted and earthworms are going to eat him if they can get to him. I wish that they could all see that they're nothing but beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men, you've read through this, you know it. Everything happens to them the same way. They both, they both die, and the, the spirit that animated them leaves. Solomon tells us the spirit that animated the animal, the cow, the horse, the dog, the sparrow, it just goes back to the earth. There was nothing of significance there. There was no immortal soul that's going to live on forever. That spirit goes upward. That's in man. Now, Solomon wasn't asking the question. Solomon is asking a rhetorical question because he knows you already know the answer, or you should know it. But that men who just look at our outward effects of life and death cannot see that our spirit goes back to God. All go unto one place. That's not talking about heaven or hell. That's talking about the grave. That's talking about the earth. That's talking about the dust. Animals and men in their bodies go back to the dust. And animals in their spirit goes back to the dust. Because it is no more than dust animated by the power of God. And it disappears back into the dust. It's never brought back together again. We shall be raised incorruptible. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upwards? You can't see it. If, if, we limit, if we limit our view of life to under the sun, we're the human animal. If we elevate our thoughts above the sun... To the God that gave us life, and if we understand what he has revealed about life, we have a spirit that goes back to him. Wherefore, I perceive, verse 22, that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? Who's going to be my heir? What's he going to do with my stuff? What's going to happen to everything I've labored in? Solomon said, you don't know what's coming after you. He is not talking about eternal destiny. He is talking about life on earth. Once you're dead, you're just like an animal. You're over from a natural standpoint. From a natural viewpoint, you turn back to dust. So don't worry about what happens with all your stuff. Therefore, if you're not going to worry about your stuff, and if you're not going to set your sight and affection and goals on things, then I perceive that there is nothing better than to rejoice in his own works. Because that's all you've got. 
But now we have a whole lot more than that. Do you want the Bible, what Paul would say about this? He would say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he would say it is far better to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord than to be here. The whole Bible taken together gives us much more than Solomon gives us. Solomon gives us, if all you're going to think about is naturally, you were nothing more than beasts. And we're just going to be corrupting in the ground. And who cares what happens to our stuff afterwards? Therefore, we ought to rejoice and enjoy our works now. But we get to do that and have the hope of eternal life that was called earlier in this service, the blessed hope. The blessed hope is the promised coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for us and our resurrection from the dead. Because our bodies aren't even going to be left in the dust of the ground. They are going to be put together molecule by molecule and glorified and made incorruptible and immortal to live with God forever, body, soul, and spirit. So we know more than is presented here in Ecclesiastes. But from a natural standpoint, we look like the human animal. What makes us different than an animal? We have a spirit that goes upward. I'll give you that. But you know what? We can have a relationship with God and we can walk with God. God never walked with any animal. God had billions of animals killed for sacrifices to him. He never asked about their pain, their grief, their howling, their barking, or anything else. He had them killed for sacrifices to him. He told man to have dominion over them and use them in any way that he wishes. If a species goes extinct and we don't have it anymore, so what? He'll raise up another one. Do you know they're finding hundreds every day? God gave us dominion over them. If you want to wear leather, if you want to walk on leather and that was some poor little calf skin, leather shoes, enjoy them. They're probably going to be comfortable. They were once skin of an animal. That means it's going to breathe better than the violent plastic of cheaper shoes. Wherefore, I perceive that there is nothing better from a natural viewpoint to forget what's going to happen after the grave and enjoy your labor now. But now we know better than that. We know that the real fulfillment of life is to walk with God and know that there is eternal life coming. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. Your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear... Then shall we appear with him in glory also. And Paul said it is far better to depart and to be with Christ. We go to be with Christ. Animals go down to the earth. Little children, when a little kitty dies or a cat dies, go ahead and bury it because if you don't bury it, it's going to stink and birds are going to come and eat it and it just makes a mess in the yard. Go ahead and put it in a hole because it's going to turn back to dust just like our bodies are going to turn back to dust. But the complete animal ended then. There is nothing more of it. It does not have a soul and spirit like you. Your spirit, when we put your body in a little coffin and put it in the ground, and we hope that never happens, your spirit goes to be with God. For those of you that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul would, that is our blessed hope. That is our blessed hope. We are not animals. We do not end when our body dies. We're just getting started when our body dies. How would you, how could we compare the 70 years of a life to the infinite number of years of eternity? That is what we should be thinking about. That is coming for us. 
We are racing through this life so fast. Every one of us over 40, every day we know that we're getting closer to it. We're changing. But we shall be changed soon. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be given immortal, incorruptible bodies, glorified with God forever in heaven. This is a hope far above. There is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works. Oh yes, there is something far better. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the truth of the gospel, and it's the hope of eternal life in heaven, justification, and living with a holy clothing and righteousness of Christ in the presence of Christ, joint heirs with Him of God and all that heaven has to offer forever and ever and ever. Now you put those two together. We can go have a good afternoon. We can enjoy the good of our works, but our hope is in heaven. We have the best of all worlds because God has chosen us to be His children. Do you think He would have deprived us of a single thing? No. Our Father loves us and has taken care of us from a natural standpoint and a heavenly standpoint. Amen. May the Lord be praised.